I think if you're a founder, it's part of your personality or part of your DNA. The geek in me looked at restaurants and went, this is essentially a manufacturing plant. I think the small mindedness around, you know, sort of trade barriers and the political system is dangerous. First, a quick message from our sponsor. Sourcing tech talent and delivering your software roadmap shouldn't be difficult. That's why DZ connects high growth companies with some of the best pre-vetted developers from across the world. Whether supporting your in-house team, building your dream dev squad, or delivering a project end-to-end, DZ's unique model is trusted by businesses globally to help them rapidly execute software development. DZ is offering all UKTN listeners a 10% discount on their first engagement. Go to dz.com UKTN to access quality development teams today. Hello and welcome to the UKTN podcast, a weekly conversation with founders of some of the UK's high growth tech companies. Each episode, we will talk through the founders' personal journey, their vision for their business and their views of the wider tech industry. I'm Jane Wakefield and I've been a tech journalist for more than two decades. And joining me today is Barney Rag, the CEO and co-founder of Karakuri. Hello, Barney. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I'm going to start off by asking you that question, which some people find annoying, but I think it is true that if you become a founder, you do go on a journey. So tell me a little bit about your journey to becoming a founder. Gosh, I, I think that's quite a difficult question to, to answer. I think if you're a founder, it's part of your personality or part of your DNA. So although I've been fortunate enough to do lots of things in my career, I always was and was always destined to be a founder. I come from a, a family business background. By the time I was 16, 15, 16, I was running my own business yeah, when I went to university, I took time out to go and join a startup and never went back to university kind of full time, worked through that. So I think, you know, I worked for a succession of startups that I hadn't founded directly after university, had other businesses that I was building on the side, doing things with. So I, th- I think it's it's sort of part of your, your DNA. It's something you either feel passionate and sort of comfortable doing, or or you don't, I think. You mentioned that you started your career at other startups, one of which was Arm, which is often lauded as the UK's, or one of the UK's most successful tech businesses. It must have been an exciting time to be at a company like that. Can you tell me a little bit about it? Yeah, I can. I mean, my, my journey with Arm starts from being, you know, the geeky kid with glasses at school. So I remember the day at when I was at junior school when the first BBC Micro arrived. Our head teacher proudly unboxed this thing, but then clearly had no idea what to do with it. This is a period of time before schools had, you know, VCRs. I mean, so the idea that you would connect this to the television and there was wires and things and tape recorders to connect up completely foxed him. And I was just fascinated by it and sort of ended up playing with it. And, you know, that begat my my love of computing and I guess of, of electronics. And of course, at around that time, I would say early eighties, I guess, you know, as we went through, as I, my school years progressed, you started to see the BBC 
become prevalent in schools, but my secondary school started to get PCs and Archimedes. And so I became familiar, you know, we'd have these huge debates at Computer Club about whether an Intel complex instruction set processor was better than, you know, what was going on inside the Acorn uh, Archimedes. So it, it was a it was a thing I was kind of fascinated in. I went off to university and by the time I got to university, the debate about whether an Archimedes is going to be a mainstream computer was over because it clearly wasn't, you know, and there were just PCs and Macs everywhere. And I sort of almost forgot about ARM until I was, I'd been probably out of university two years, was in a startup where I was unhappy with the way things were going and saw an advert for, for ARM in, you know, I think Electronics Weekly. And at that time, the company was, that would be like 96, 95, 96. So the company was sort of three or four years post uh, spinning out of Acorn, just finding its feet and starting to get some success. It was pre, you know, the the big announcement with Nokia, which, you know, you could say was the the tipping point for the company going from a, a small, very specialist, quite interesting looking company to a mainstream business. So to join the business at that time, it was, you know, I think there was about 40 of us, maybe, maybe heading towards 50 by the time I joined. It was a very small company, still had the 12, you know, sort of tightly knitted together founders that were there. It was a very, very exciting time. It was a time that predates the dot-com boom, just. It was a time that predates everything we now think about startups. So it was a risky you know, career choice for most people to in the electronics industry, in the semiconductor industry, to go and work for an unproven company like ARM. And I, and I think they were struggling to recruit. And as a physicist who'd been doing, you know, DSP design really prior to that, I looked like a, a very unusual hire, but they needed project managers. They needed people to to help them as a, as the company was growing. And it was fascinating. It was great to go there. It was a unbelievably open culture unbelievably focused organization it was a real can do you know you were empowered to get on to do what you thought was right when i look back on it i think i was in my mid late 20s and spending more time on a plane visiting customers and partners in japan korea america than i was at home and i was given the autonomy and the ability to be able to do that and i think that that level that culture that level of trust combined with the intellectual horsepower that was inside the business, both in terms of the technology we're developing and the business model that we'd worked out, led it to be, you know, they they were the seeds that it pre-IPO forced us through a fantastic IPO and, and the incredible growth that went from there. And so it's, it's a time of my, I think I was there four years, or so a relatively short period of time in, in my career, but managed to achieve a huge amount in that time. There's a group of us that are still very, very close friends. All these years later, we still see each other socially. Important life events are all celebrated together. And uh, it's a time in, in my life, my career, I look back on for a lot of learning and with a lot of happiness and enjoyment. And what do you think of what's happening in the chip world now? We're seeing these mass shortages. And we're also seeing the chip world and, and the wider tech world being pulled into geopolitics the divisions between China and the US. What, what's your sort of thinkings about that? 
I think the supply cycle is, is always cyclic in semiconductors. It's almost impossible. The amount of investment that is needed to build state-of-the-art fabs and production facilities, it's always going to mean people are cautious. You're always going to have a take-up for design of chips to use those fabs to get the most efficiency. Then people are going to see those benefits, and then there isn't going to be enough capital in the fabs. You know, There's going to be a shortage of fabs as, as more chips go through. So I think we're, we're in one of those waves which has been made more difficult by COVID, um, more difficult by the sort of macroeconomic ch trends. I think we are seeing, you know, the sort of political geoeconomic stuff around where stuff's manufactured, who has control of it, what's happening with design rights is a, is a function of a change in the industry that happened probably about 15 years ago when uh, the cost of fabs became really, really high. And the only people investing in manufacturing were, were the Chinese and Southeast Asians. So you've, you've got a dearth of manufacturing capability in Europe and the US. And when I look at my time in the semiconductor industry, that was starting to happen. But it was still clear there were major wafer fabs in Europe, in North America, in other territories. And that's very much centralized around you know, Taiwan, China and and some extent Korea now. So I think, yeah, that when you get that much centralization in any industry, that much consolidation around certain geographies, it's going to make people uncomfortable. So how do you address that? Well, you're seeing government intervention with subsidy and funding to readdress that balance so that you could have US-based wafer fabs, maybe European-based fabs. It, I think it's a natural uh, readdressment. I think the small-mindedness around you know, sort of trade barriers and the political system is dangerous. I, I wouldn't profess to be an expert on it, but I think, you know, um, one of the phrases we used to have at ARM was think global, act local. And we very much built a global business with international partners from different cultures, different parts of the planet. And you spent, I spent my life traveling to see those people and work with them. And I think that was an enormously positive thing. I think it's very sad that we're in a political environment now that makes that much harder. Mm -hmm. Last question on ARM. Obviously, it's in the position where it's looking to IPO later in the year. And there's a bit of a battle going on between London and New York as to where, you know, this should happen. Any thoughts on that? I'm no expert on the on the ARM IPO situation. I wouldn't profess to be. But it, it does make me smile that, you know, we people forget we did an IPO before, you know, <laughs> we, this happened at ARM. And in those days, it was a bit like, you know, well, you know, there weren't really any IPOs for UK companies. It wasn't what happened. And so were we going to be LSE listed? Or will we be Nasdaq listed? And we solved that problem by having a dual listed. So we, we simultaneously listed on LSE and Nasdaq. And I do kind of look at this sort of debate that's going on and kind of go, you know, we, we might have solved this problem in the past. I wouldn't know all the details, but yeah, it does it, it does make me smile when I look at it. Yeah, and similarly, I guess to the 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 fight between uh, China and the US, we're perhaps not learning from from the mistakes of the past and moving on. Uh, but it, it, let's talk a little bit now about your move from the complicated world of chips to the some would say even more complicated world of robotics. What kind of encouraged that move? What what made you decide you wanted to get into it, robotics? I guess the, the point is in between ARM and Karakuri, I spent an awful lot of time in, in the entertainment industry. So which was which was really started by the work I was doing at ARM. So a lot of the work I was doing at ARM was around early digital media, in particular MP three 
and how that would work and that kind of exploded and and post ipo arm i spent many years in major record companies and entertainment and businesses dealing with digital distribution and i think after 15 years of doing that at, in large companies uh, at a very senior level i felt i was missing that sort of startup thing that my career was had really been all about and back to that do you biologically think you're an entrepreneur and a founder? I sort of felt like I was, and I was being sucked into a world of much more sort of private equity CEO managing existing companies, dealing with turnarounds than creating things from scratch and growing things. And so I, I had an itch to go back to do that, but I didn't know what. So, you know, I spent some time after I last left my uh, last role in the entertainment industry working with some VCs, kind of just sitting in their deal meetings, trying to help their portfolio companies, looking at some stuff. I also had a, a group of friends just because I eat too much in the restaurant business who all had restaurants who were saying, oh, you know, could you come in and help me? My business is failing. I don't understand this. So really out of interest, I got involved in, in on a pro bono basis, looking at some restaurants. And again, the sort of same thing that happened to me when I, you know, is looking back at arm looking at the projects that we got involved with i just kind of the geek in me looked at restaurants and went this is essentially a manufacturing plant we have raw materials come in one side we have orders on the other side and we have to assemble and put these things together we have a kitchen that is our factory our manufacturing plant and the number of errors and mistakes and problems that were happening in that process would mean the difference between a restaurant with a high turnover losing money because it wasn't an effective manufacturing plant and a restaurant with a low turnover uh, making money because it was being run very effectively and it was really down to the quality of the staff and the people that you could have in there. So that made my brain start to think, well, couldn't we start to bring in some of the sort of ERP and automation technologies that you've seen in other manufacturing industries to improve this? And that was the genesis of, of Karakuri. And I was starting to work on just starting to really look at that, obviously looking at IoT, distributed computing startups, a little bit of AI stuff that was kind of happening, looking at a bit of automation, mechanics, electronics, just because they were interested. And that was about the time Brent and Henry were starting Founders Factory. I think when they their first LPs into Founders Factory, one of the ideas they said is, oh, we'd like to get involved with robots and particularly robots in hospitality. So that is really where kind of two things came together and reconnected with, with Brent and said, look, I think there might be something in this. And that, that was how we, you know, the, the germ of the idea for Karakuri was born. And Karakuri, the name is an interesting one, isn't it? It's a Japanese word for a device that moves an automaton, which we've seen way back in history. What, what made you come up with that as a name? Well, originally, one of the things we were, the sort of hypotheses that we had for the business was that, you know, if you go to Japan, you can get really great quality sushi for not very high price. They call it salaryman sushi. You go to a railway station, get great sushi. And the sushi in the UK is, is not great, particularly sort of pre-packaged or supermarket sushi is not terribly great. Certainly not the quality you'd get in a railway station in Japan. So one of the reasons we looked at that was, well, maybe we could use automation to make sushi fresh on demand and we, we use robots to do that. So we, we sort of started with sushi as our original hypothesis. We were looking for a name of the business and this Japanese word karakuri, which is kind of, you know, in colloquial Japanese now is, is what they'll say when something is amazing or there's a, there's a autom an automation or a mechanical process, which is awe-inspiring. We thought, well, that's quite a good fit for the name of the company. 
A quick message from our sponsor. Access to high quality and cost-effective talent is one of the biggest growth obstacles facing companies. DZ exists to solve this problem. In a challenging market, businesses need to focus on reducing overheads, all while pushing for meaningful growth. DZ's one-to-many model provides access to an ecosystem of hand-picked development teams, engaged on a flexible basis and at competitive rates. Visit dz.com slash UKTN for an exclusive 10% discount for all podcast listeners. And tell me a little bit about your plans for 2023. You've obviously raised quite a lot of money. Where are you at the moment and what do you see as being the sort of next stage? Yeah, I mean, the really interesting thing about our industry is, you know, we, I started Curry in 2018 when you were just starting to see, uh, you know, stories about Flippy, the burger flipper in California. There was the odd story about Zoom. I think a lot of people were looking at industrial automation. So PLC controllers, standard robot arms, and going, oh, well, maybe we'll just whack these into a restaurant, see what happens. Uh, there was a lot of, you know, sort of excitement about that, but not a lot of practicality around it. And we spent a long time inside Karakuri really looking at the product solution fit and the, and the need in the market. And the pandemic was a really interesting time for everybody in our industry. So a lot of the sort of smaller startups doing things with standard automation failed, just didn't have market fit, didn't have a solution, couldn't really have anything that was scalable. And obviously it was a very, very difficult time for the for the restaurant industry. So a lot of us had early stage proof of concept products on the shelf ready to deploy into restaurants, even had deals with restaurants that kind of imploded as you know 2020 store, saw the hospitality industry close. But what 2020 also did was as things reopened, particularly for, for takeaway, it highlighted the, what do, you, what do you want to call it, the great resignation or the shift in people's working patterns. I think, you know, the work from home thing, the number of options that people discovered that there were to make a living in the non-traditional spaces has had a hugely important impact on the hospitality industry, particularly the quick service restaurants, uh, if you want fast food chains like Burger King, McDonald's, KFC, Nando's, uh, any number that you might come to mention, are finding recruitment almost impossible post the pandemic. And so we'd identified this, we were working on some solutions for those industries, particularly on frying, taking me back into a different type of chips, if you like, but for, uh, you know, the type of frying, the open basket frying that they're doing QSR restaurants, it's a horrible job. It's the least popular job in a restaurant. It's the most difficult job to recruit, retain for, and it's, um, you know, has the biggest impact on consumer satisfaction. So we'd started to do some work on that pre the pandemic. And as a result of the pandemic, we just saw huge interest in that. And I think, you know, so. What do I think that that says for Karakuri in 2023? Well, our product is just coming to maturity. We're just going into restaurants now. We have a series of announcements coming across this year. I think this is the year that restaurant automation goes from blue sky thinking and university lab prototypes to serious pieces of commercial kitchen equipment that are installed and operated by significant numbers of restaurants who immediately see an impact to their P&L and the operation of their business as having them in there. So 
a long way of saying I think 2023 is the year of maturity for for Karakuri and also for for the wider restaurant robotics industry. And excuse the uh, food-based pun, but can you give us a flavour of what those announcements might be? Can you give us any little uh, tidbits? We have spent a long time making absolutely sure our product is right and stable and meets the requirements of some of the biggest QSR fast food uh, restaurant chains in the world. And across 2023, we will be installing and working with them. So you, you should see some of those announcements happening this year. Now, I once did a comparison. I had a cocktail made for me by a robot arm and I had a cocktail made for me by a human. And the one made by a robot, it was a few years ago now, was a lot messier and it just didn't taste as good. At the time, it made me realise that actually, even with quite a simple job, which is measuring out spirits and, and adding to it, you, you do sort of need the human in, in that chain. Presumably, you wouldn't agree when it comes to cooking. You think robots can do as good a job. No, I, I would agree. And I think this is where there's a great deal of misunderstanding about, about what we do and where automation will work. And I, and I think that ha is happening on several layers. So firstly, I would say, I think I know uh, where you will have had your cocktail and the particular robot that's involved in that. And I would say that while that's a really interesting showpiece and has been used to generate football and a lot of conversation, robot arms are not best suited for working in kitchens. So traditional industrial robot arms of which will have been used to make your cocktail and they're used in many of our competitors' products, usually designed for the automotive and electronics manufacturing industries. In those industries, they have a different set of requirements that you, to you, than you would find in a commercial kitchen. So typically manufacturing plants are out of town centers, large areas, floor spaces, relatively cheap. To get the speed and efficiency, the robots use a lot of force and, and uh, power in their motors. Well, that means that they're dangerous to operate in close proximity to people, but that doesn't matter because you just put a big cage around them because your floor space is cheap. If you're running a McDonald's or a Burger King or a KFC, you're typically in a town center, very expensive floor space. Your kitchens are absolutely tiny and people have to work in very, very small proximities. So this is a long, again, a long way of saying, I think you have to choose your automation for the application. And I think if you wanted to make the perfect cocktail automatically, I wouldn't use a robot arm to do that. There are better automation solutions to achieve that output. And that's very much what we do at Karakuri. So if you look at our Fryer product, it, it doesn't use a robot arm. It doesn't really look like a robot. It looks like a large piece of kitchen equipment. It's actually a whole massive connected together, uh, if you like miniature IoT based robots that are coordinated to be able to achieve the perfect process inside a kitchen. Now, if you also look at our fryer robot, it has been designed to do one of the most boring, repetitive tasks in a kitchen. We take frozen fries that you have to portion accurately into a basket, move quickly into oil for a very defined period of time, take them out, drain them, tip them up, have them ready to serve. It's a very linear, straightforward process. There's not a lot of artisanal involvement in that process. It's, it's a almost mechanical process that a human being has to do. There are a lot of those tasks in a kitchen. 
whether it's peeling and chopping vegetables or frying chips, there's a lot of very repetitive, straightforward tasks. Those are the tasks that we think are most suited to automation. Those are the tasks where you aren't really applying the value add of a human being in doing something. We don't think that robots will replace humans in restaurants or in kitchens completely because there is an enormous amount of value add that's needed in certain cases. Humans have a very different role in a QSR kitchen than they would do in a Michelin-starred kitchen. And so I think what the way we see the world in Karakuri is find the tasks that make sense to automate, find the automation solution that will allow you to do that in the most effective way, i.e. don't bring in a third-party solution that might be good for automotive manufacturing into a kitchen and expect it to work that way. So pick your problem and pick your solution in a way that adds the most value and understand that in so doing, you can actually free up people to do the things that are more complex, more artisanal, require human interaction, require thought and consideration in a way that, for example, standing in, a front, in front of a fry line doesn't. Um, and on that question, I've also seen a lot of robot demos and I don't think I've ever seen one that hasn't gone wrong. And it is hard, isn't it, to get, even if you're doing a very precise task and not asking a lot of your automated machine, it is hard to get it right. Is that something that puts your customers or potential customers off? It is. There's a lot of concern about that. So, that, you know, if you go into a fast food kitchen, a QSR kitchen, it's entirely optimised. And everybody in there wants to make sure the customer's happy. And if you get an unhappy customer because something's gone wrong and their meal isn't there on time, it's a horrible place for everybody to be. So what we've had to do and, and why we have been very careful with the development design of our fryer system is to build into it intelligence around what its fail safes are. What could the failure mode be and how do we design a system that moves away from that? And you have to do that in what's going to be a very autonomous environment. So in a production line for a car manufacturing plant, if a robot goes wrong, the, the value of the product going down the line justifies a shutdown of that line and an engineer will come out of their office, fix that problem on site and go. You can't do that at a QSR kitchen. You have to have something that's going to be autonomous and operate remotely and not fail. And if it does fail, you have to have defined recovery modes to be able to, to deal with that. So a lot of what we've designed at Karakuri compared to what you've seen with people making burger flippers or cocktail makers with industrial robotic arms, taking factory technology into restaurants, you'll see what we've done is completely different. And it's about the speed you can operate in, the size you can operate in, the cost you have to deliver at, and the reliability and robustness of the end solution that you've got to provide. Now, there's two big questions that people come up with when they think about a future that involves robots alongside humans. And the first, I guess, is more about automation. And it's the simple question of whether automation robots whatever form they may take, is going to steal human jobs. Now, you've sort of touched on that already, but I'm just uh, looking to get a little bit of an expanded answer on that. I think this is always a wonderful question to to ask people, because uh, to ask me uh, and to answer for people, because I always say, you know, uh, do you think you are more or less busy in your job today than you were 20 years ago? 
And I've yet to meet anybody, apart from those people who've retired, who say, well, you know, now I'm more busy than I was 20 years ago. And I go, how much automation do you carry with you today compared to 20 years ago? You know, 20 years ago, maybe you had a BlackBerry, but you certainly didn't have a portable web browser. You certainly didn't have the ability to do all the things you can now do with an iPhone or an Android phone in your pocket. The interconnectivity that we have with PCs, cloud-based services, the amount of automation we have in our lives has increased exponentially. It hasn't taken away jobs. It's actually making us all busy and creating jobs. And so, you know, you've, you've almost got the argument that Luddites made around, you know, what What's the invention of the plow going to do? Are we going to take away all jobs? There'll be no industry. I, it, I just don't see that as being the case. As a species, we're very good at finding higher mode tasks and more important things that we want to use our time on. It's, it's our aspiration to do that. So if we can use automation to do the, 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 the jobs we really don't want to do, we will find more things to do further up the intelligence stack. So, and if you look right now, we have customers who are coming to us at Karakuri and saying, we are not interested in reducing the number of people that we employ in our restaurants. Our sole interest is increasing their term of service. So in restaurant kitchens, it's not unusual to have people who stay for between six and 12 weeks. So you've got restaurants that are recruiting on average, you know, sometimes eight six to eight times a year to replace those roles. That's a very expensive process and it has a hugely negative impact on morale and the end of product quality. And the reason for that is the job is frankly boring, hot, smelly, bit dangerous, not very interesting. You can take that away, you can give people a more fulfilling job, they'll stay longer and it's better. It's cheaper for the, for the restaurant group to have people in jobs for longer. It's more rewarding for the employee and ultimately you get a better quality of product at the end of the day. And the other question that sort of always comes up is whether we will see increasingly robotics combined with AI. I mean, we're seeing companies like Boston Dynamics moving towards robots that really look and feel like people. Do you think that in the future we will combine AI, which is also making great strides with robotics. I mean, we are doing today, but I think it's important to be clear about the definition of AI. I mean, an AI that can chat with you or talk to you is very different from the types of AI that we use in our robotics today. So there clearly will be a sort of humanoid robotics that are important for certain applications. You can see all the hype around chat at the moment and people going, can we take customer service jobs out? Can we take, you know, I saw Martha Lane Fox's piece in the Times yesterday going, if, if I was a lawyer, I'd be very worried about, you know, what I'm going to be paid for for advice because this chat box is so good it can do these things. Clearly, there's an important element for human interface around something that looks familiar or acts in a familiar way and speaks to us or, or provides text to us in a familiar way. I think the real win for us with AI inside robotics is more about how we get truly smart physical systems that are taking in lots of information about the environment around them and making better decisions. So I'll give you an example. A good friend of mine was involved in an AI project to create a smart fridge and the, the theory behind this was they'd put cameras inside the fridge, it would look at the contents of your fridge, and it would be able to recommend things you might want to prepare and cook from what's inside your fridge. 
all brilliant. Everybody went down this road. Everybody got very excited. Lots of sponsorship, lots of endorsement, lots of investment. What they realized was, it sounds trivial, but they realized that a lot of your contents of your fridge are impossible to inspect visually. So if you've got a tub of margarine or a pot of something, it's not good enough to know that you have that pot. You need to know how much is left. So you need to start to have Sparta sensors. You need to start to have, you know, I've, oh yeah, I've got that margarine, but how much is in there? How much does it weigh? What does this need in this recipe? What are the other factors I might need to bring into play? Those things, I think, is where we will really start to see AI combined with things that are, once you take an AI and you connect it to its ability to measure, interpret, understand the physical world around it, then you can make really smart automating systems. So systems that don't crash, you know, robots that don't break because it expected to pick a glass up and the glass wasn't there and it doesn't know what to do and it spills, I don't know, vermouth all over itself. All those things go because it's much more aware and it's much more able to sense and it can therefore make much better decisions and judgments about how it should operate. And that's all we have time for on this week's edition of the UKTN podcast. Thanks to Barney Rag for joining me and thanks to everyone who was listening. To keep up to date with all the latest UK tech developments, head over to www.uktech.news. Don't forget to follow UKTN on LinkedIn and Twitter. And do get in touch with me via Twitter, at Jane Wakefield, with your comments and suggestions about the show. Until next time, goodbye from me. A quick message from our sponsor. Access to high-quality and cost-effective talent is one of the biggest growth obstacles facing companies. Deezy exists to solve this problem. In a challenging market, businesses need to focus on reducing overheads, all while pushing for meaningful growth. Deezy's one-to-many model provides access to an ecosystem of hand-picked development teams, engaged on a flexible basis and at competitive rates. Visit deezy.com UKTN for an exclusive 10% discount for all podcast listeners.